Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. You know, to do rolling is so anti-outdoors for me. It's like, that's what I do at home. I have to like fold things. Oh, <laughs> it's anti-outdoors. Okay, well, for oh me, my, my God. world. Two words <laughs> describe Tim. It's efficiency and outdoors. She just said you're not, you're anti-outdoors and not efficient. I do have to give it to her though. You've done a lot more trekking than I have. So, so. Yeah, you guys can't see, you can't see the video of this, but Tim is, tear is rolling down his cheek and he's just cast his headphones aside and he's stormed off the set. What's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. And I'm Evan. We got Marnell de Jesus with us today to talk about Porter's rights. Marnell is the founder of the Porter Voice Collective, which advocates for trekking porters the world over. She is based in Peru and has embedded herself in the community of porters there and is one of the loudest voices globally uh, to get them better working conditions, better pay, and as we learn on the show today, even better food. So we're really excited to get into it with her. Before we do so, however, we are going to do some weekly hot takes questions. Evan, I got a couple of door slammers for you today. You want to go first or should I? Slam that door on me, Tim. Let's go. Okay. I want to I want to talk to you about one of our favorite places, airports. Have you ever met somebody in an airport that then became a person in your life? Not necessarily a, a partner, but somebody that you continue to connect with or follow afterwards uh no but i'm sensing that you have yeah so i want to tell you this story about it's been almost three years ago now i was flying to hong kong from denver and i (laughs) i got to the gate and i was sitting at the gate and i saw this guy walk up to the check-in counter at the gate and i i literally i've never like thought this before but i looked at him and i was like that guy is a digital nomad. Five minutes later, I'm in line at the gate. I'm behind him because he's still there talking as our flight has now been canceled. Uh, and I hear him say, I'm trying to get to Bali. I need to be there tomorrow. I start talking to him while the in the, while we're in the line. This guy, his name is James Sebastiano. Turns out, Evan, he had a movie coming out with Russell Brand that I have since watched. Uh yeah, pretty crazy story. I, I followed him on Instagram, James Sebastiano. After I met him, I doubt he would remember me. But wait, wait, I, I have he, followed. He's a filmmaker. Like, what is he? Like, what? He, he owns a bunch of restaurants in Bali, uh, but he had suffered from very bad anxiety and decided to make a documentary film tracing his mental health journey. Okay. And Russell Brand features very heavily in this documentary. So has this guy remained a part of your life? Uh, unbeknownst to him, yes, I watched his. I, <laughs> I, I watched his documentary and I follow him on Instagram. Um, I don't think he ever followed me back. In fact, I doubt he even remembers talking to me at the airport. But I just, I, it was such a, a funny meeting of this guy at the gate where I, I looked at that, I looked at him and I was like, that guy lives in Bali. 
I guarantee it. It doesn't sound like you talked at all unless you just skipped that no, part we, of the story. It we talked. Like you eavesdropped on his conversation and then creepily I, followed him for the rest of your I life. I eavesdropped on his conversation and then I butted into the conversation and was like, oh, yeah, like I spent a bunch of time in Bali. You know, I've, I've been there. You know, I was working at Outpost. And he's like, oh, yeah, I own the restaurant right across the street from Outpost. Uh, so then we talked about Bali a little bit and then he left the airport. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a good one. That's good. Um, yeah. I don't, I've never been anyone in an airport on a plane. I had very, very bad food poisoning going from Indonesia, uh, speaking to Bali. It wasn't Bali. I was going from Jakarta to Bangkok. Terrible food poisoning. I was so sick. I just like looked very visibly ill. And I was trying to buy a bottle of water from the flight attendant. And she said it was uh, t- 10 baht or whatever, the, you know, the currency. And I tried to pay with a credit card. And they said, we don't take credit cards. That's paying cash. I didn't have any cash. I was so like visibly sick. And she's like, nope, sorry, can't, can't give you a bottle of water. And I was like, oh, my God. So the girl in the row across from me saw this happen, uh, this Bulgarian girl, and she bought me a bottle of water. Oh, how nice. And so she, buys, she buys me the water, and she's recently left a job as an accountant to become a travel blogger. Uh, so we, we chatted for a bit. Uh, she's going to be in Bangkok for uh, you know a few days. And we chatted. We follow each other on Facebook. We're friends on Facebook. And to this day, this is, you know, five years ago. You're still friends on Facebook. We're still friends on Facebook from that one interaction on the plane where she bought me a bottle of water. And now I see all of her updates. I'm like, that's a girl I will never, ever see ever again. And I I have no connection with her beyond like a half-hour conversation. But I will probably be friends with her on Facebook until one of us deletes our Facebook. So. Well, at least she became your friend on Facebook. James Sebastiano never followed me back, and so I just look like a total stalker. Yeah, well, at least uh, no one in, uh, publicly knows that story, so you don't. Uh, you know, it's a good thing you never told that to an audience. Until now. <laughs> uh, Evan, my second story for you today, uh, and I think this is proof that I'm getting old, but I'm curious, have you ever gone at, at a restaurant or a bar that's busy and ordered two drinks for yourself at the same time specifically because you don't want to have to deal with the line again nope but i'm sensing that you have yeah i do it all the time actually now actually i this that's not true i I lied so on like very busy bar nights like thanksgiving eve or um saint patty's day or new year's nights that the bar is incredibly packed that you it takes like 20 minutes to get one drink i have gotten two at once just because i know i'm gonna have to go back in 15 minutes and wait another half hour so i i have done that but only on occasions where the bar is very busy for a kind of special occasion so i mean and i i do it a little more frequently now even in situations where like i'll go to the brewery near my house i know i'm gonna have two beers and i don't feel like getting up again so i'll just order two beers and close out my tab yeah hey i mean that's again tim is all about efficiency and that's a topic that comes up again in the episode right so stay tuned for that but efficient tim two beers for one double fisting all right i'm gonna go over to my hot takes for you number one matador audience on instagram voted for this week's hot takes question for me and it is is dry january bullshit i've never tried it but i'm tempted to say yes just because I feel like, I, why does it have to be such a big deal if, if you don't want to... I mean, I've taken extended periods where I haven't had any anything to drink for a, quite a while. And I don't have to, like, label it anything. I don't know why it's... Why does it have to be labeled something and be, like, posted about on social media? I mean, never having tried something for ourselves has never stopped us from 
passing judgment on it, Tim. So why not? Why start now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I can't even tell you how many people I know that, are, that do this every year. And I die a little inside every time someone tells me they're doing it because dry January basically is a great way of making the most depressing month of the year even more depressing. So you're on this high in December. You got the holidays. You got all the lights. Everything's lit up. Good, good cheer, good spirits. You're hanging out with friends and family. New Year's Eve hits and then boom, nothing's going on. The lights come down. No one wants to do anything. And then to add insult to injury, dry January rears its ugly head. And it's like, if you're going to pick one month to just do this extreme thing and not drink and not go out, why would you make yourself even more miserable than you actually are is my question. Yeah, I mean, it kind of just goes back to our conversation from a couple of weeks ago about New Year's resolutions and whether they're necessary. I, I don't uh, I'm all about having a time to reset and and reapproach how you how you do things. I just the thing about dry January is the fact that you're labeling it almost just seems like you're doing it more for the attention than for the actually not drinking for a month. I just don't like extremes of any kind. So I think if you want to be healthy about your drinking habits, awesome. Like if you want to even use the New Year's, have a New Year's resolution to be have it be a healthier uh, relationship with alcohol in 2022. I'm all for that. That's great. As long as it's a long-lasting life change that you're making. Changing your lifestyle for one month of the year, no matter how healthy you happen to be for that month, is not doing anything for you long-term. So fine, abstain from alcohol completely for a month. And then what are you going to do? Binge drink and black out the first weekend in February? That's not good for you. Depriving yourself completely of something in the interest of starting the year off on the right foot thing, only to then fall right back into your old habits. That's like a diet that tells you not to eat for a month. And then next month rolls around and you can just eat cheeseburgers and pizza for every single meal. It's like have a balanced relationship with alcohol all year round don't deprive yourself completely one month and then dive back into blacking out in february just makes no sense it's not healthy yeah no i agree that's how i feel about it all right second question are package holidays bullshit by package holidays are we talking about like valentine's day no i mean like taking a vacation taking a trip with and we've, we've touched on this topic before, but it's been a while, uh, so I wanted to revisit it. Like signing up with a tour group to, oh, okay. yeah, that yeah. organizes that you pay like $4,000 excluding flights. They handle your luggage. They handle hotel accommodation. They handle the buses. They handle all the transport, everything, and you just kind of follow along. You know, I think there are situations where it's necessary or, or helpful to do that. Um, for example, my my aunt and uncle-in-law are going on a package tour to Antarctica this year, and they've been planning it for a decade. They're both, you know, experienced travelers, but not, not you know, they're not the type that are going to take a, you know, a shipping vessel or a, a science vessel just to, to say they got in Antarctica. You know, they, they, want the, they want the travel experience out of it. So that makes and there's no other sense, way to yeah. do that. So I think there are situations where it's justified. I, I think the I think that the the vast majority of travel guided tours that you can just book on a website on a whim, you're gonna have a better experience if you take the time to plan and execute the trip yourself, and you're also gonna save a lot of money, and your money's gonna be going to better places. It's gonna be going to the actually local businesses and the people that make that place awesome instead of a tour company. 
Yeah. So my parents are planning a trip to Europe this summer, and they had a whole list of uh, tour companies that they were going to choose between. And they asked me for my advice. And I was looking for look through all these tour companies, trying to see which one was the best. And it just hurt me to look at this for them because it's so expensive. And it's like 10 to 12 days. You're paying thousands of dollars. And they really wanted the convenience. They wanted the convenience of not having to deal with their luggage, figuring out transportation, subways, buses, all this stuff, which I understand. But at first, I pretty much was like, guys, don't do this. Like, let let me, like, I'll plan this for you. Tell me where you want to go and, like, what you want to do. And I'll put together an itinerary for you, and you'll save so much money. And they were considering that, but then they ended up just, they really want the convenience. They don't want to have to figure out bus timetables and trains and get advanced train tickets. And, I mean, after having a few conversations with them, I'm now on board with that plan, and I see the benefit of it. Whereas before, I was absolutely not. I was like, no, you're being, this is highway robbery. You can't do this. I'm not going to let you do this. But I get it. I get it now. It's like, if you really aren't someone who's like a used to traveling a lot, you, you travel constantly, you're used to navigating Ubers and Airbnbs and subways and kind of figuring it out. And you don't want, part for me and you, I think part of the fun of traveling maybe is not knowing is showing up in a city and not knowing what we're going to do or where to go or if there's a restaurant that we're going to like. And I think that's not the case for a lot of people. They show up, they want to know exactly what they're getting into. They don't want to have to walk all around the city to find like the one restaurant they can eat at. They want everything to be taken care of for them. So I, I kind of have come around on this issue. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's a, it's a situational thing. I think it'd be, it's too far to the extreme to say that it is always not necessary and it's I think you're cheating yourself out of uh, a good travel experience sometimes by opting for the package tour but I think there are there are certainly people and there are situations that make it necessary my biggest issue is the 20 to 40 other people they stick you with right because that makes or breaks the trip if you like those people awesome like maybe you make some lifelong friends but if you don't like if like five of those people even are just insufferable people there goes your trip to Europe. Fuck that. Yeah. It's all about the people you're with, I think. I agree. And speaking of the people we're with, we are going to be with Marinelle in just a second. So stay with us, and we'll see you guys on the other side. Okay, Marinelle is a civil rights attorney turned self-proclaimed mountain nomad who advocates for Porters and diversity in the outdoors. Marnell, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to No Blackout Dates. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Right. So I, I want to start kind of where we started with that intro there. You are a, a former lawyer. Uh, you've been through the, the lawyer process and the schooling and the office work and everything. And I'm curious what caused you to turn your back on that? What caused you, what, what drew you out into the field uh, and away from the corporate life? Yeah, I, I didn't plan it at all. It was really an accident. I fell in love with hiking, and I just thought that that would be a passion. I'll just be a lawyer, and then one day be a judge, and then retire, and then still hike. But then, to be honest, I guess I realized, you know, why can't I do a second act? Why do we have to stick with one job the rest of our lives? We're kind of conditioned to kind of just elevate ourselves in one career. And then I kind of just sort of decided, you know what, I just want to I just want to try something new. And I guess I combined hiking with entrepreneurship 
and the idea of being a writer and an advocate, which actually that happened later on as an accident. So, um, so yeah, I think it was just a, sort of like a, an inner sort of uh, journey where you kind of, you know, explore really what your truth is and what you want to do in life. And so I think the second act to, to me is more, much more authentic and honest. Uh, and that's, I kind of want to jump into that too, because the main reason why uh, we asked you to come on is because you, you have started a project called the Porter Voice Collective, and you've done a ton of work advocating for people that probably don't get the attention they deserve, A, by trekkers and by the outdoor media, and B, are very often taken advantage of by not only their employers, but by governments and regulations placed on them that they have no voice in. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the Porter Voice Collective and what you're doing? So the Porter Voice Collective was established in 2019. It's only about two and a half years old. It was out of my interest in understanding what's going on in the tourism industry as a whole. I trekked a lot in my life, including Kilimanjaro in Nepal as well as in, in Peru, where I am. And I learned over time about the Porter issues by virtue of the Porters just talking to me and having a conversation like we're having and telling me their truths like, you know, well, this isn't really what's going on, you know, because we're all coming there as a hiker, all happy and romanticizing this whole idea of trekking. And lo and behold, there is a dark underbelly with the tourism industry. And I always feel like I'm being like sort of uh, pulled from, you know, from different sides. One is that we want to continue romanticizing it, but at the same time, I already know what's going on on the, on the ground. So that pretty much compelled me to create this organization so that I could just share what I know, because otherwise it's killing me inside, to be honest. This is just, I mean, that's really sort of the selfish side to it, is I just want to unburden myself of what I know, because once people know about it, we can talk about the problem, and then we can find solutions, and then we can really live in a reality that's that's honest for the tourists and the porters and so that's how it kind of came to be it's really to divulge the information uh, worldwide and before we go on can you talk about exactly what a porter is for those who might not know yeah so a porter is a term that is used for people who are working in the tourism industry in specifically in places like Nepal, Peru and Tanzania. In Tanzania you have Kilimanjaro, in Peru you have the Inca Trail, and then Nepal you have the Himalayas and that could be the Everest Base Camp, you could be Annapurna Circuit. So when you go to those places you have people, local people who are carrying your things, your bags, and these are the so-called porters. They are the people who are carrying your stuff up the mountain and all these three countries have the biggest employment of porters worldwide let's let's dive into what some of the issues that the porters are facing are because i I think it's very easy for a tourist or for anybody who reads you know an outside magazine or anything to kind of visualize what their work is like but i don't think people grasp and i i probably don't even grasp exactly what it is that they are a, facing as seasonal workers and B, dealing with as, you know, a, a, a community of people that's not always at the forefront of the decisions being made in the industry that they work. So what are some of the issues that they're facing? Well, it can be as basic as not having enough meals on the ground when they're working. I'll talk about just the Inca Trail, for example, because a lot of my work focuses on the porters and Inca Trail. There, there will be issues about food. Uh, you know, tourists will have uh, a huge amount of portion of food, and there are very good meals, like they have meat, protein. 
uh, we've gotten com uh, we've gotten into conversations with porters about well they only give us soup and rice and wow. if you're carrying bags after a long day that's all you get is soup and yes rice. right can you imagine yeah I mean even as a hiker we're all we're always wanting meat right we want protein but can you imagine carrying 40 kilos even more or 30 kilos whatever and then they're only on soup and porridge right and, and it could be just two meals a day and these porters are hired by just just so to clarify the porters are hired by a tour company yes so they are freelancers you know they are not employees okay. so they are contracted out if there is a tour happening they will have that work if they're selected sometimes they're selected by the guide sometimes it's the company sometimes it's a regular company that they're hired sometimes they're freelancing everywhere so i i have a i have a question here because so my wife did the Inca Trail a few years ago, and she she told me when she got back that she noticed when they started out on the trail, the, the guides and the porters went through a checkpoint where they check your weight, they check your shoes to make sure you're not just wearing flip-flops, uh, but that after the, the checkpoint had been cleared, they kind of all huddled and switched everything around and put their sandals back on, uh, and that seemed to be like what they wanted to do because it made it easier for them you know they made the younger more fit guy carry the heavier pack while the older more experienced guys lead the way um so i it from the way she told it you know and this is only one person's perspective but it didn't seem like that regulation of the checkpoint at the beginning was the solution and i'm curious what you think might be more effective ways to make sure these guys are taken care of I mean, there's there's plenty of ways. I mean, one thing really to be on, to be honest is to create laws, the regulations with accountability. Uh, currently, yeah. in Inca, on Inca Trail, there are laws. There are porter laws. We we saw the document. I read it. There are you know, there's for example a maximum number of like amount of weight you carry. But there's a lot of cheating involved. There's a lot of violation. We got a list of companies that have violated those things every year, and they get away with it because there isn't a lot of there's really not, nothing to, you know, there's no consequence. The only thing maybe is a small fine to the government. So the government is making money, right? So if people violate the weight limit, then they get money out of that. So it helps, the, it's a good scheme. Um, so I think the laws have to be revamped. The, the porters want that to be changed. That's one of their priorities right now is that we want to go to Lima, to the Congress, and we want a very clear, strict laws where there will be accountability for these companies so for example the other issue is medical uh, we've gotten into situations where we found out that there is a person a porter who fell off the mountain went to the hospital there is no safety net for that there is no medical insurance there's no health insurance there's no life insurance um, the only thing is that they're only at the mercy of the company for any kind of assistance to pay for the you know to pay for the medical bills the porters want to change that, you know, uh, they want more sort of safety net. They need to have some sort of funding, you know, maybe the tourists can help out with that. And that was one idea is that maybe tourism can put in some funds where there is this pool and it's all managed by the porters, not the government, not the company, but the porters. Now, do the porters generally know what they're signing up for when they decide to become porters? So is this has the industry been this way? for a long time or has it gotten worse so people ended up becoming porters thinking that the treatment was going to be better than it actually is the idea of portering didn't come from the quechua people so the porters here there's eight thousand of them 99 percent of them are quechua people from the in, from the communities in cusco 
So we're dealing with indigenous rights. We're dealing with indigenous identity. And if there's anything I want to say to the world about the situation, the Inca Trail has been in operation for 50 years. And when one thing I really that really, really struck me was that this industry has created an industry that never really did take into account the voices of the indigenous community. It was an idea of let's do the Inca Trail because it's such a gorgeous place and we want to we wanna explore this as outsiders. But hey, who's going to carry our stuff? So that idea came from the outside world. So they created this idea of portering instead of using a mule, for example. But that, that never came to the catch from the Quechua community. They were never asked how that should look like. And at this point, because of that, it, became, it becomes some sort of a job that's not really wanted by the Quechua community. It is out of necessary and desperation. So when we interview Quechua people about their work as porters, their heads are always bowed down, looking down, and they never really have any kind of dignity as a porter. So being a porter, what's the job market like in Cusco in the surrounding area? Are there alternatives for employment or is being a porter something that people are often forced into because of economic constraints? Because it sounds like it's a pretty terrible job and no one likes doing it. So are there no other options for people? So that's kind of how they end up in this profession? Yes, so that's really the drive is the economics. I mean, it's it's gotten to a point where, you know, tourism is, is really relied upon by a lot of the Quechua communities. And that's a bad thing in and of itself because it creates, you know, when the pandemic hit, they had no income, right? And so um, instead of focusing on agriculture and figuring out what their strengths as a community and figuring out a way to make money for themselves, they lost the self-determination and independent thinking. They relied so much on money economy. But I do want to emphasize the truth about the Kesha community is that they used to barter products, right? Potatoes with rice. That was sort of, money wasn't even a currency for them. And even to this day, they, they still do that, right? That is the indigenous Quechua way. But because of the pool of capitalism and, and the tourism coming in here and saying money, 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 we could give you money, do the porting job, it created a very, you know, very, you know, obviously they relied on it so much more now because they, they're thinking, oh, we can send the kids out to Cusco, to Lima to study so we can have more money. It breeded some sort of greed among the community as well. And instead of appreciating what they always have relied upon, which is their Pachamama, the culture, the connection to the land. I say we go back to mules, outsource it to mules. Yeah, you know, I... I thought about that too. I think I'm thinking maybe even in Nepal and Kilimanjaro, I, I'm not really sure what the, maybe that's more of an environmentalist type of argument. People don't want that, you know, but... right, let's get creative. <laughs> like what, I don't know what other animals are good for our good pack animals. Yeah. robots. Hey, we're the 21st <laughs> century. Like, let's get creative. Do you think though, like has COVID allowed a point to refresh, like a break to refresh and a reapproach at all, or has it caused so much stress uh, in these communities because of the lack of tourists coming in that, that, you know, people are just wanting to get back to how it was. I talked to some people here locally, the Quechua community, and they said, oh, you know, we went back to agriculture, to what we do. And I would visit some of uh, the people that I know in their community and they're farming. 
and they said and they asked him how are you doing and it's like they're we're fine we're okay we went back to the way it used to be and they seem okay with it in fact they're they, they realize they're fine without the tourism they're fine without the money coming in right uh so from the quechua standpoint the community i think they're resilient they they know how to go back to their culture and their their ways of life now the other question is the tourism industry as a whole did they re they did learn something out of it right do, do we now want to reset the button and and kind of think of other ways to to deal with this issue i kind of i'm afraid i have to say no i think there's probably more thirst if anything you know right the revenge tourism it's like oh i can't wait to offer inca trail because everyone's going to want to come i am not really Sure, people talk about that all the time in the tourism industry. It's like, oh, reset button. We're now awakened to the idea that, you know, human first, you know, human rights first, or these types of things and equity. But I have a feeling everyone kind of, I get the sense here on the ground, there's a hunger for more money coming in because they lost it. Let's, uh, let's get a little more lighthearted here and let's actually talk about trekking. I know you are a trekker, you're a big hiker, a mountain person. What is it, Marnell, that you always have with you when you're embarking on these treks? And I'm also curious, because Evan and I nerd out on packing a lot on this show, what do people bring that they don't actually need? Oh, okay. Um, I always have to bring duct tape. It's so okay. not That's a good fashionable, one. but I always bring it. Well, you know, it, fix, it fixes everything. It'll fix your tent, it'll fix your backpack, it'll fix your water bottle. You can fix anything with duct tape. For some reason, I was thinking, I forgot that we we're talking about in the context of hiking and just talking about like in the context of regular general travel packing. And I was like, duct tape? What on earth is she using duct tape for? Like this is like kidnappings? I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay, I never thought about that. Okay, and now I need to think about that, like the kidnapping part. <laughs> um, but because you asked me about hiking, <laughs> but you know what? Well, you know. Yes. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. Go on. Okay. And then I guess for something that I feel, to be honest, I think it's just, I always feel like I just bring extra, extra clothes, you know, layers, you know, like, um, an extra shirt that I don't really need. Like, I think when, when I did the uh, John Muir tra trail hike alone, solo for 24 days, I used the same shirt. I, I brought like two extras, but I never used the other shirts. So I, I learned that you can, all you need is one hiking shirt and then one sleeping shirt. That's it. But I end up still having this mentality like, I got to have a backup for that shirt, but you don't really need it. So that's exactly what I say for travel in general. People bring all kinds of clothes they don't need. They go away for like yeah. three nights and they bring like seven days worth of clothes. I'm like, you're going to probably wear one shirt for those three days. You don't even need a backpack. Yeah. Just literally wear the shirt on your back on the plane. You'll be fine. And this is what we, we, we always talk about this, like never checking luggage and just trying to travel light. Exactly. Are, are you a roller of clothes or are you like a stacker of things in your uh, pack? You, here we you, go. What is the optimized way to pack for these treks? Because Evan and I are on opposite sides of the fence on this. I roll, especially if I'm doing outdoor stuff, I roll everything up, my, my clothes, uh, any extra gear I have that can be rolled. I roll it and I stick it in kind of in like layers on the pack, you know, so I'll have clothes rolled, 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 then whatever, you know rolled 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 jackets or whatever and then anything else that i might need that day you lost her after the second roll tim that's a lot of rolling can i ask the, can i ask the rat can i ask the rational for the rolling like what is your rational for the rolling 
I've found that it makes it easier for, to just grab something out without having to untake everything out of your pack. What's that thing you use, Tim? The packing cubes that, that you tried to like convince me of? The cubes, yeah. I love packing cubes. I don't know that I would. Th- that's more for like not, travel. Yeah, and not hiking. In a, yeah, in a not bag. A thing. But uh, they make it really easy to roll. Also, I'm confused, Tim. Do you do you roll your clothes? I'm starting to disappoint him. I'm not. I'm not a roller. I, I stack. You're on Evan's I, side. Yeah, I think that's so. That's so neat. You know, to do rolling is so anti-outdoors for me. It's like that's what I do at home. I have to like fold things. But oh, the outdoors, I feel like anti-outdoors. Efficient. efficient. Sorry. Oh okay. Well, for me, Tim, my world. Tim is all about efficiency <laughs> and the outdoor. If I two words describe Tim, it's efficiency oh. and outdoors. She just said you're not. You're anti-outdoors yeah. and not efficient. Jeez. I do have to give it to her though. You've done a lot more trekking than I have. So, yeah, so. <laughs> you guys can't see you can't see the video of this, but Tim is a tear is rolling down his cheek, and he's just cast his headphones aside and he's stormed off the set. <laughs> okay, so Marnell, Equity Global Treks. Tell us about Equity Global Treks. I know you are uh, you're an advocate for women's rights. You're an advocate for minority rights in the outdoors. I'm I'm curious, uh, the voices that need to be heard in the outdoors. Who are they, and and what can we do to make them heard? Wow, uh, there's a lot of voices that need to be heard. So I I think we're just in the starting point of making systemic changes all over in the outdoors and travel. So I want to say, of course, women definitely are very underutilized and underrepresented in the media and everything else, and also indigenous and then uh, people of color, uh, basically everyone who's not in the same narrative as we always see on the magazines. Yeah, you know, too, too many white right? guys. Exactly. So I'm not going to say it, but yeah, you said it. So um, I'll, I'll you know, say for, it because I, I am that yeah. guy. So <laughs> <say>. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so those voices are definitely necessary. And what can we do? I, I just want to tell people to just create the access. You know, if you are if you have any kind of privilege or you have any power, you have a podcast, you have a, you're a writer, whatever else create that access you know maybe learn to say no to some of the work that you do so that you can open those doors for others to take on those those projects because for example in storytelling there's a lot of storytelling happening now podcasts magazines everything else in the media in uh, you know marketing i think that we need to ask ourselves if we are the right storyteller right that's a, that's one way of looking at how to create access if you're going to an indigenous community maybe you're not the right person to tell it if you're not from an indigenous community and then figure out a way to give that opportunity to someone else and i think i want to emphasize that you know there is going to be competition i suppose people always think like scarcity in terms of projects but you know this is what it means to be an ally and to this is what it means to create social change is to to believe in the fact that you are part of that you know big big sort of blob of people that are trying to make a change and if you're going to do your part it's going to create abundance in the long term it may not seem like it in the front end of it but it will so just create the access awesome well marnell thank you so much for coming on i i appreciate you um being willing to share your story and, and your passions with us. Is there anything else you wanted to put out there? Uh, no, I think I just wanted to, uh, you know, just, you know, let people know that, you know, if, if they're interested in any kind of um, 
you know, learning about workforce equity, I guess I always want to go back to Porter Voice Collective, that there is a website for it. Maybe people are wondering about the educating themselves. They can check out the website and learn. It's not that hard to find out information these days, so definitely you can be an advocate for change in the industry. And if people want to figure out how they can help out Porters or learn more about the issues facing Porters, where can they go? Well, the Porter Voice Collective can be one place to look for uh, information. What we do is we curate all the different resources that you can explore and read so that you can educate yourself. Uh, everything that you need to know in terms of where do you want to go to learn more will be there. Um, and also, just to be honest, if you are, now that you know that there is something going on with the industry, when you go on your next track, Make sure you actually interview the, the operators, the tour operators, ask them the questions, be detailed about it, and be observant when you're on the trail. That would be a good start. And just continue having a conversation with your friends. Right. Well, thank you so much. We will link to all of these things in the show notes. Uh, Marnell, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Well, here we are in news of the day after a great talk to Marnell. Thank you so much for coming on. So, Evan, the first story I want to discuss today is about a place that a lot of Americans have been going to lately, Tulum. And as any who have been there in the last couple of years lately have noticed, Tulum is blowing up, uh, probably too blown up, as we just learned in a recent TikTok from Diplo, the music artist, created a TikTok exposing what Tulum is really like these days. Uh, and what he showed is not the popular, gorgeous Riviera Maya, peaceful, tranquil scene, but uh, an Spring actual... Spring break! Woo! Yeah, yeah, an, an actual crapshoot. Uh, in fact, he sits there and calls out specifically an older couple visiting their daughter who refused to leave, and a guy in a leopard print pant who looks like Kendall Roy after a bender who is on a crypto retreat. So... Uh, it, it seems to me I've been like people are partying a little too hard in Tulum. Yeah, and I think this is a, a phenomenon that happens to a lot of destinations and will unfortunately happen to uh, most desirable destinations in the world at some point or other. It's just an effect of globalization. I mean, people are coming into uh, a peaceful, tranquil, a pristine beach community. They realize it's beautiful and they love it and it has a good uh, nightlife scene. More and more people come, they tell their friends, it becomes over-commercialized and the culture becomes eroded. And that happens not just in beach destinations, but everywhere, it happens in major cities. Pick any major European capital, why it feels less culturally authentic than driving an hour out of the city and going to a small town. It's because the more people come in, the more people move there, the more tourists visit, the more it becomes globalized and the more it, it loses its character. So I think it's happening everywhere, some places quicker than others. Yeah, and the thing about Tulum, you know, obviously the, the ruins at Tulum are amazing. That's a little separate from the town, but the town itself has kind of become a hipster haven. And then it's on top of that, you have the fact that the entire Riviera Maya coast there is lined with all-inclusive resorts that just feed people booze all day. So you have like the ultimate conglomeration of things that can ruin a place really fast kind of all situated right around what used to be a, a pretty cool small town i feel like every time an all-inclusive resort springs up somewhere a museum curator somewhere in the world has a heart attack right 
Right. Tim, you know this more than anyone. Living in Colorado, you guys complain about Californians coming in and ruining the Colorado culture all the time. Yeah, yeah, man. It's, uh, I mean, it is what it is. You know, it's it's tourism, but Colorado is certainly a place that has changed a lot over the course of my life. All right. Well, on a slightly lighter note, our second article is the strangest sex laws around the world. And we got some pretty bizarre ones for you today. We got Japan, which bans showing private parts in hentai films, comics, games, whatever. Uganda has banned sexy music. Uganda Parliament passed an anti-pornography bill in 2014 and invested almost $300,000 on a South Korean-made pornography detection machine, which includes audio recordings, writing, and erotic music that tracks your phone. You can get arrested. So that's why. I wonder what they consider erotic music. What is erotic music? Ska, Tim, do you think? Ska is pretty erotic. Oh, yeah. Blade. You know, Evan, uh, sorry, if you want to keep going on that, keep going. I was, no, I was just going to say the entire Enema of the State album, but everyone knows that. Go on. Right, yeah, that's pretty erotic. Uh, I think, though, the best one on the list, though, Evan, number six, Illinois' reptile nuzzling ban. Uh, if you purchase a pet reptile in Illinois, you are not allowed to nuzzle or kiss your pet reptile, and you must be provided written notification of such. The funny thing about these laws, this one in particular, is that a lot of laws come on the books because there's a need for them, because there was an incident sparking the proposed law. So a reptile nuzzling ban didn't just come out of thin air. It's because there was a reptile nuzzling epidemic in Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> and they had to do something to, to curb it. Uh, other things we got, uh, Indonesia has banned self-pleasure. What country, also the answer to the question, what country had the roughest time during the pandemic? Indonesia. Just absolutely no outlet for their frustrations. California, no boob pillows near the highway. No boob pillows. Well, then where are you supposed to have your boob, transport your boob pillows? What is a boob pillow? I don't know. Well, you know what, Evan? There are some weird, weird laws around the world. Well, in Illinois, you can't nuzzle up to your reptile anymore, but next week, nuzzle up to your iPhone because we got a new episode dropping next Tuesday and every Tuesday after that. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Flow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halkey, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Matador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week.